It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Hello, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. It's a great pleasure to be with you. I wish you again a happy new year. Even though we did broadcast LarryKudlowShow.com. LarryKudlowShow.com. You can hear us all across the country around the world, throughout the solar system, and the Milky Way. And by the by, um, during the week, Fox Business, name of the show is Cudlow, 4 to 5 p.m., Monday through Friday. If you can't make it at 4, you can call your favorite 9-year-old, text your favorite 9-year-old, show you how to DVR the show. That thing plays again at 7, by the by, and for early risers, it plays at 5 a.m. in the morning. But we've got a lot of work to do here. Start off with Joe Biden's dumb speech, Blarney speech yesterday. I mean, he's really, here he goes again. Democracy is on the ballot. I mean, it's just all utter nonsense. Utter nonsense. I mean, how do you give a speech on the principles of democracy? When you're doing everything you can to keep your major opponent off the ballot, as in Colorado or Maine, I guess Massachusetts or Illinois or other states. By the way, the Supreme Court's going to hear this case, the Colorado case. They're going to hear it. Uh, I think the oral arguments are February 8th. We'll have Jarrett later in the show to talk about that. Legal Beagle Greg Jarrett. Nobody better than he is. But the point is, the hypocrisy of Joe Biden is vast. He's trying to throw Trump in jail for 700 years, keep Trump off the ballot. People see right through it. I mean, this is not democracy. It is not democracy. Jonathan Turley, the uh, respected constitutional lawyer, said, removing Trump from the ballots is unfounded and dangerous. And drumming up some phony insurrection charge. I mean, Trump was never charged, never convicted. It's the most transparent form of political interference. And that's all the Bidens are doing. And Bidens are calling the shots. Believe me. They are calling the shots. They run the Justice Department, the FBI. They run the Democratic National Committee. They order the Democratic state committees. I mean, everybody knows this. Folks see right through it. It will not work. I mean, you know, you read the speech. I read the speech. I don't know if anybody actually reads the hard copy of the speech. I mean, he calls he calls Trump a Nazi. It's incredible. Calls Trump a Nazi. That's not going to work. It will not work. People see right through this. Nothing about his record. Just recycled attacks from 2020, January 6, 2020. Democracy on the ballot. No, it's not. By the way, it's interesting to me, you know, on this point, um, 
not only is Biden trying to keep Trump off the ballot, put him in jail for 700 years, but he's also trying desperately to stop any competition inside the Democratic Party. And the Democratic Party is not is not gung-ho behind Biden. The party is very split. Big chunks of the party do not want Biden. And here we go again. Democracy is on the ballot, except, and this is a hat tip to Wall Street Journal columnist James Freeman, who writes a very good column every day called Best of the Web. And uh, James Freeman reminds us that Biden's unconstitutional efforts to keep Trump off the ballot is not all. Biden's also managed to cancel the Florida state Democratic primary rather than face any competition from other Democrats. How <laughs> about that? There, Democracy's on the ballot. No, it's not. And uh, Freeman notes, by the way, that Biden loyalists have eliminated a any kind of competitive primary in North Carolina. In other words, other Democrats would like to run against uh, Biden, as they did back in 2020. He's lost a lot of support among Democrats, among young people, among Hispanics, even among African Americans. So this is not democracy. We're going to talk about democracy. So he's canceled the Florida primary. He's uh, stopping uh, competition in uh, North Carolina. And then you got this fella, Dean Phillips, Congressman Dean Phillips. He's a House member from Minnesota. They're trying to keep him off the ballot any place in the country, any place. So Biden hypocrisy doesn't want to run. He doesn't want to run against Trump, put him in jail. Won't let any Democrat run against him. Like the, he's the fearless leader, <laughs> president for life. This fellow Phillips, I don't know much about him. I'm sure he's a big liberal from Minnesota, but he wants to run against Biden. He says, "Quote: The destruction of democracy by the people entrusted with protecting it." That's a pretty good line. But of course. You know, from day one, Biden has uh, instructed his Justice Department to go after Trump, indict him, charge him, as I said, try to throw him in jail. At the very least, keep him in the courtroom so he can't campaign. None of this is going to work. Mr. Trump is a tough, strong man out there campaigning. He's in Iowa as we talk. You'll see Trump close really fast. I mean, that's what he does. He'll run. He'll do eight, nine rallies a day in Iowa. He'll do eight, nine rallies a day in New Hampshire. He'll make great use of his airplane and his resources. He's got good organization on the ground. But talk about democracy, you know. I mean, uh, what were the quotes? You go back to January 6th. Trump's quote was peaceful and patriotic. Peaceful and patriotic. That is not insurrection. Nothing of the sort. Trump's line back in January 6, 2020 was march peacefully, patriotically, and make your vote heard. There's nothing insurrectionist about that. It's called free speech. It's called free speech. 
But Joe Biden doesn't like free speech. This is another area. I mean, there's a two-tier justice system, right? What about Hunter Biden? I didn't see uh, Joe Biden talk about that. Or hear him. Or anybody. They're in complete denial about the Hunter Biden problem, which is not going to go away. This coming week, the House Oversight and Judiciary Committees, uh, Chair... Jamie Comer and Jim Jordan, chairs, uh, will meet to see if they will vote to hold Hunter Biden in contempt of Congress because he didn't show up for his uh, deposition. And, of course, with checks in hand, Mr. Comer and uh, Jason Smith, head of the Ways and Means Committee, have a stronger and stronger case about Hunter Biden's money laundering, money fraud, influence peddling, and perhaps bribery with foreign agents. Biden won't talk about that. Yeah, that kind of democracy is not on the ballot. Oh, maybe it will be on the ballot. You look at the polling numbers, people already suspect, more than half suspect, that if Joe Biden hasn't done anything illegal, he has been unethical. And the illegalities may flow as the House continues its investigation in the so-called impeachment inquiry. Then there's the constant attempts to stifle free speech, censorship, censorship. Anybody disagrees whether it's COVID or parents going to school board meetings or pro-life Catholics worshiping in church. We found out that the Biden administration working with social media, working with the FBI, working with the CIA, repeated attempts to stifle free speech or anybody that disagrees with their left-wing point of view. And if we're going to talk about breaking the law, take a look at what's going on in the southern border. The catastrophe. 300,000 Biden illegal immigrants crossed into the USA in December alone. The total number is, I think now under Biden's three years, at least 4 million and they want to keep the border open, and Joe Biden will not yet negotiate with the House Republicans. I talked to Speaker Mike Johnson on the air on the Fox Business show this past week. H.R. 2, very good bill. Complete the wall, remain in Mexico, Title 42, catch and deport. None of this was in Biden's speech yesterday. I would say to you folks that um, as we get to Iowa, which is um, a week from Monday, right? And then New Hampshire is, what, eight days later? So I believe the 15th is the Iowa caucus, and then the 23rd is the New Hampshire primary, something like that. My point is... um, The catastrophe at the border is probably going to be the single biggest issue. I mean, recent polls show it's almost tied with the economy. 
None of that appeared in Biden's speech. I mean, this was the first speech of the year. In effect, he was kicking off his presidential campaign, and it was such a nothing burger, just recycled nonsense and hypocrisy and name-calling. He's not going to win that way. He is not going to win that way. You want to talk about law-breaking in our democracy? How about canceling student loans? The Supreme Court says you can't. The Bidens continue to try to do it. And then, of course, there's the whole fiasco of Biden's left-wing woke policies, diversity, equity, inclusion, so-called. Claudine Gay of Harvard had to resign. Anti-Semitism plagiarism, DEI. That problem's not solved yet. We will talk about it later in the show with the great Heather McDonald, old friend, who wrote a brilliant piece about it. The country doesn't want this. The country does not want woke DEI. The country does not want affirmative action to the nth degree. The country wants merit, a meritocracy. This is America with freedom and free enterprise. None of that was in Biden's speech. None of it. Of course, he doesn't have a record. People can't afford the economy. They have to hold multiple jobs. They've encountered roaring inflation, prices of everyday necessities skyrocketing, Wages falling. We've already had one Biden recession. The first half of 2022, because of the 9% inflation, inflation has eased down, but prices are still well above where they were. I mean, here's a question. Are you better off than you were four years ago? Reagan's question to Jimmy Carter way back in 1980. You could bet Donald Trump's going to ask that question. So this was a dreadful speech. Valley Forge. I'll tell you, George Washington, the father of our country, would be turning over in his grave. If spirits could turn over, they would be turning over. We've got a lot more. I'm Kudlow. We'll come right back. Stay with us. Democracy on trial. I don't think so, Mr. Biden. This is the Larry Kudlow Show on 77 WABC. Not one word about the economy, inflation, interest rates, falling real wages, 20% increase in grocery prices, and not one mention about the border. And in fact, the Democratic Party is now up in arms about the border. Blue state mayors and governors. Not a mention. Not a single mention. Foreign policy, not a mention. Iran, not a mention. Afghanistan, no mention. Ukraine, no mention. Deficits and debt. No mention. We hit thirty-four trillion on the on the 
debt this past week. So, of course, Biden mouthpiece Corinne Jean-Pierre gets in the White House press room and blathers on about, oh, it's it's Trump's fault. <laughs> wait for it. Wait, wait. Oh, it's Trump's fault. The Trump tax cuts caused the debt to rise to a new record level. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Last November, and I talked about this and wrote about this, last November there was a very good scholarly article from the National Bureau of Economic Research. That's the the top-of-the-line blue-chip academic institution. You had economists from, God help us, Harvard, Princeton, University of Chicago, and the Treasury Department And they looked at 12,000 corporate tax returns. They looked at those tax returns before the Trump tax cut bill and then afterwards. And they found that the tax cuts worked like a charm. Business investment went way up. Real worker wages way up. Worker productivity way up. And revenues even. All right? You lost money the first year or two, and then over the 10 year budget window that people look at, the revenues came back because the economy was strong, because more people were working, more wage earners, more income. Didn't affect the debt, didn't affect the deficit. Former Obama economic advisor, my friend, good friend, Jason Furman, smart guy, called the NBER study, quote, the most convincing estimate of the response of investment to corporate tax changes I've ever seen. The Gallup poll asked, do you think taxes are too high, too low, or just right? Only 3% said taxes are too low. But, of course, they blamed Trump. Trump has a great economic message. Drill, baby, drill. Get those prices down. Cut taxes. Deregulate. No $3 trillion Biden regulations anymore. Close the border. Trump tough overseas. America first. Joe Biden blathering in Valley Forge. Didn't do himself any good at all. I'm Cudlow. We're going to talk to Mark Simone and Joe Concha after the break. Stay with us, folks. Lots more to do. Welcome back, folks. Valley Forge. No, no, no. Cudlow. I'm sorry. Here we are. We're going to talk some more about all Joe Biden's inaugural presidential campaign speech, fresh from St. Croix. I didn't see the pictures. People say he had a very red burnt face from too much sun. Anyway, we're going to talk about it with two ace political analysts, Joe Concha. Joe Concha is a columnist at The Messenger and a Fox News contributor and the author of the book, Come On Man, The Truth About Biden's No Good, Horrible, Very Bad Presidency. And a regular on the Cudlow Show on Fox Business and Mark Simone, Hall of Fame radio host, 710 WOR, weekdays, 10 a.m. to 12 p.m., Mark Simone, did you actually see the speech? I bet you were set side, really focused on it. 
No, Mark Simone. Oh, can you hear me? All right. Oh, there uh, you, you go. You? Oh, there you go. Can you hear I, I me now? You, I, I got you now. Oh, I feel I, like Joe I'll Biden. I'll bet you. you <laughs> <laughs> did you actually see the speech on TV or anything? Yeah, every time he does one of these uh, Hitlerian uh, angry rage speeches, it's always <laughs> in Philadelphia. Last time it was next to the Liberty Bell, this time close by Valley Forge. Uh, I, I guess it's we're supposed to Revolutionary War. Some, I guess we're supposed to believe this idiot is Patrick Henry or something. I, I don't know what the point of that is. <laughs> it was scheduled for January 6th. Yeah. But it was January 6th, and then this storm uh, is supposed to come today so they had to move it so even mother nature weighed in and didn't want this speech on january 6th <laughs> and in you a know way, he couldn't even he couldn't even get that right he couldn't even get that right <laughs> you know it, it, it was kind of a tribute to donald trump in that they couldn't make any legitimate case against him being president so instead they went to this hysterical hyperbolic nonsense about a threat to our democracy even January 6th, he said, we almost lost it all that day. It was an ugly trespassing incident, but we almost lost it all just because they knocked Nancy Pelosi's printer off her desk. We almost lost America over that. I mean, it was just insane speech. <laughs> uh, Joe Conscious, it was February 6th, but he gave it on February 5th. He, he, yeah. He got, he got there too early. <laughs> That's very, very funny. Same, like we, we I mean, on the show. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, it was um, it was interesting to me. I I uh, I got a hard copy of it last night and I read it. Uh, not a single word about his uh, record as president. I mean, you know, you, this is the first speech of the year, uh, in effect, launching his presidential campaign. Uh, I, Mark is right. It's an odd thing. He always goes to Philadelphia or near Philadelphia. But, Joe, not a single word about anything he's done in office for three years. All cheap shots at Donald Trump, which I think are going to bounce off Trump. Uh, and don't you find that odd, just, you know, in straight political terms? Well, look, he does most of these events in Philadelphia because that is quite the easy commute, right, if you have Air Force One. And then it's a much easier commute to get to Delaware, where he is again this weekend. I can't get over the fact that he had 138 days of vacation last year, right? <laughs> Average American has 14. This guy has 10 times as many. I mean, what an insult to every worker out there. So apparently fighting the insurrectionists and saving democracy is a part-time job, right, where you get three-day weekends every weekend. That's, that's how that works. <laughs> And the fact that, to Mark's point, they hold it on January 5th because there's two inches of snow headed towards the Philadelphia area, right? I mean, could you imagine this guy leading Valley Forge? Uh, we're going to move on to the attack up a day. We don't want you out in that snow. Come on, man. Two, two inches of snow which, that hadn't happened yet. Right. Oh, man, so that let, is Let me something. share with you. Yeah, let me share with you three numbers. This is why this was about Donald Trump and not about Bidenomics, for example, or uh, the Biden border crisis where the border is actually closed, as they will tell you. On inflation, this is real clear politics average. Mm -hmm. The president is at 32 percent approval. On wow. immigration, he is at 32 percent approval. Foreign policy, that's the high water mark. He's at 35 
100% approval there. So when one in three Americans believe you're doing a good job on the issues that matter most, you point to Donald Trump. Here's why I don't think it's going to work, because Donald Trump never said, hey, I'm like a priest running for president. Right? It's baked into the fact that this is a guy who has rough elbows and just wants to get things done. So to make the speech, uh, Donald Trump is bad and I'm a good guy, when we now know that he is not a good guy based on uh, all the money he's made overseas through his son, uh, I don't think this works. In fact, I, I think this has no effect on polling whatsoever. It plays well with MSNBC and CNN, but that ain't the country. Are those guys, I don't know, Mark, if you watch those other networks, what are they saying, CNN, MSNBC, and all the lefties? How are they praising this? Are they just bashing Trump as a Nazi? Oh, they love this. They think this was uh, right up there with Churchill and uh, ask not what you can do for your country. (laughs) But, you know, the most telling thing is, and they don't mention this, the most telling thing is there was no audience. Nobody showed up for the speech. It looked like a handful of people in front of them, mm. and I, I'm sure they were all donors and local party people. There were no voters showed up. You've worked with a lot of presidents. You ever see a president go somewhere and not be able to draw a big audience? That tells you everything you need to know about this that, election coming up. That was Ron DeSantis' problem. Nobody yeah. ever showed up at his rallies. Poor guy. You know, also, uh, the whole point of the speech was trying to tell you what it would be like if Trump were president. We know what he'd be. We saw four years of a, a great job. It, 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 it's a ridiculous premise. We know exactly what it'd be like if he were president. How's this going to play? You think is, uh, I mean, so I know everyone's divided left versus right and the networks are left versus right. But uh, Joe Concha, I'm, I'm just I'm just wondering, people in the middle, if there are anybody in the middle anymore, I think they're going to look at this, uh, shrug their shoulders and say more of the same. Joe Biden's a weak president. I don't want him. The next election, guys, comes down to uh, a few thousand voters in seven states. Georgia, Arizona, Nevada, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, mm-hmm. throwing another one in there, New Hampshire. You know, Ohio and Florida have gone red. They're, they're already gone. Uh, so to those folks who have trouble still with food prices and gas prices, and they see what's going on at the border, or in cities like New York City where migrants were spending billions of dollars to house and feed these people who shouldn't be there, that's why the black vote is slowly leaving Joe Biden. The young vote is leaving Joe Biden over his support over Israel primarily, it seems, and the fact that they know that they'll probably have to rent for the rest of their lives. They're buying a house. That's a thing of the past. Forget about it. Uh, Independents obviously don't like this as well because of inflation and education, and the world seems on fire as far as foreign policy. So all of those factors, Joe Biden can talk about Donald Trump in January 6th all he wants. If he's using this as his fastball in January, by the time we get to, you know, August, September, people are like, what else you got, man? What are you running on? It's not, hey, I'm going to get better with age. All right, he's cottage cheese, not wine. That we do know. (laughs) You know, there's a uh, yesterday's jobs report. There's a number in there. Multiple job holders hit an all-time record high, 8.6 million people, multiple job holders. I mean, that's a very big number for these kinds of numbers. Um, Mark Simone, uh, Trump's going to try to turn the tables. Trump's going to basically say, uh, you're the guy wrecking democracy. You're the guy on the fringe. You're the guy who's the extremist. And I think that Biden gave Trump an opening to do that, a big, fat opening. Well, here's the problem. This is right out of the Saul Alinsky playbook. He wrote the book Rules for Radicals that uh, all these Democrats believe in. The big play in there is accuse your opponent of what you're guilty of. 
mm. whether it's the tampering with democracy or profiting off government, of accuse the opponent of it. That way, when they come back at you with it, it just muddies up the whole issue for voters. They don't know who to believe. That That's the reason he's doing this. So basically, uh, this race will be on Biden's record and on Trump's record, too, and whether he can come back and do it again and make it better. That's what you're saying. Yeah. Uh, you know, Biden stands on his record to keep you from getting a look at it, because there, there is no record that he can run on. It's uh, So you have to accuse Trump of everything in the world. Just hit him with everything. And uh, it, it's a play that Hillary Clinton tried. It didn't work for her. Uh, I think this is all going to be about two issues, the border, the economy. That's mm-hmm. it. Those are the yeah. issues. And yeah. Biden is a disaster on both. Yeah, I agree with that 100 uh, percent. And he didn't mention it yesterday. And he's probably not going to he's probably going to try to not mention it at all as the campaign uh, goes on. Let's take a quick break. And I want to come back and take a look at Iowa and New Hampshire. Joe Concha of The Messenger and Fox News and his book, Come On, Man, The Truth About Biden's No Good Presidency. And Mark Simone, Hall of Fame radio host, 710 WOR, weekdays, 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. I'm Kudlow. More on the election. Larry Kudlow on 77 WABC. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking politics with Joe Concha, columnist at The Messenger and Fox News contributor, and Mark Simone, Hall of Fame radio host at 710 WOR, weekdays, 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. Mark Simone, just one last point uh, before we get to Iowa New Hampshire. This January 6th obsession of Biden, I mean, January 6th, 2021, was three years ago. I don't think the country is focused on that at all because of the issues we were discussing in the first segment, the collapse of the border, uh, the problems with the economy. Uh, I would even add, as one of you said, chaos in foreign policy. In other words, that shtick has worn so thin that I think it's a gigantic mistake by Biden, not just a small mistake, a gigantic mistake. Nobody cares about it anymore. No, outside of the uh, Eastern establishment, everybody knows it was a horrible trespassing incident. Uh, and they've charged 730 people. Nobody was charged with insurrection. They were charged with unlawful entry, uh, trespassing, disorderly conduct. That's all it was. And you, you, they've got to stop uh, hitting that because it means absolutely nothing. People are way past. Everybody remembers where they were when Kennedy was shot. Mm. Nobody thinks about where they were uh, January 6th. I don't even remember where I was. So it, it means absolutely nothing. But it, it's a tribute to Donald Trump. They haven't got any real case against him, that they have to resort to this nonsense. That's right. They never made a case against Trump. I mean, that's the... Uh general counsel uh that's uh, scott jack smith that's his problem anyway joe concha iowa sewn up for trump absolutely uh, I, I mean it's not even a question i think at this point I, I know that ted cruz beat trump in 2016 when polls were showing that trump was winning there but not by this kind of margin right you just don't feel any momentum behind desantis haley's putting all of her eggs into new hampshire uh and then i think that desantis would drop out after Iowa, because his donors are already fleeing, they will uh, be completely gone at that point. He knows that New Hampshire, he's even further back. Uh, the question is, where do Trump supporters go 
when DeSantis drops out? Do they go to Haley? Uh, and is that enough to make it at least competitive? But like we talked about, even after that, she's losing badly in South Carolina. That's her home state. I think that would be the end for her. And then the nomination goes to Trump. But just back to one quick thing as far as Biden really focusing on January 6th. Mm. I think that whole administration watches MSNBC 24-7, and they think that, honestly, that's the pulse of the country because that's all they talk about. So when they do something like this, they get positive feedback. They're like, ah, it's resonating, and they're just out of touch, just the same way Hillary Clinton never went to Wisconsin, and she lost that state in 2016 because she was wrapped up in this eastern bubble, right? Mm. And and the fact that they compared – January 6th to 9-11 in Pearl Harbor, that insults a lot of people. So they can play this card, but again, the boomerang effect, I think, is there. And then, like we talked about on your show, you even have on the Democratic side, Dean Phillips, who's running against Joe Biden. He has no shot, but they're, they're so petrified that Biden's even remotely challenged that they've taken him off the ballot, or at least they're attempting to in Florida, North Carolina. It's like, why do you support democracy so much, Mr. Biden? And then you're literally taking your opponents, not just Donald Trump, but your Democratic opponent has almost no shot off the ballot. That's not democracy. That's crushing democracy. So I I, I got a kick out of that. No, you know, I raised that point. Um, Yes. It's a very important point. James Freeman's column in the Wall Street Journal and elsewhere. But if you're for democracy, then, then A, why do you want to put your primary opponent in jail for 700 years, but B, even in your own party, why won't you allow a primary in Florida, which is a big state, why won't you allow a primary in North Carolina, and why are you doing everything you can to prevent this congressman from Minnesota, Dean Phillips, from appearing on the ballot? I mean, uh, my pal Pete Hexat doesn't think that's a big issue, but I think I think it needs more visibility because it so undercuts all the Biden points. I mean, Mark Simone, it's not a small thing. This is what dictators do. This is what banana republic people do. This is what fearless leader do uh, does. You keep nobody can run against you. Therefore, you're going to win. It's like Biden wins against no other opponents. I mean, I think that it may be an ankle-biting point, but I think it's a key point. Yeah. It's also what candidates who've seen the internal polling and know they're hopelessly behind do. Uh, and again, it's the Sololinsky playbook. If you're guilty of something, just keep accusing your opponent of it, just clouding the issue up, muddy it up. That's why now they're running this uh, whole campaign that Trump profited off uh, oh. um, all these foreign leaders staying in his hotels. And they never mention in the report that he wrote a check to the U.S. Treasury voluntarily and donated all those profits. He never kept a penny of it. They never mentioned that. I don't think uh, Hunter Biden or James Biden are about to donate anything to the Treasury from what they made. <laughs> well, it's the Chinese had dinner at Trump's hotel or they stayed overnight. By the way, that's a legitimate business, which he left. I mean, he left the business to become president. But the point is, it was a business. Influence peddling is not a business. Well, ask Joe Biden about that. He, he turned it into a major industry. <laughs> I guess he has. Mark Simone, New Hampshire, uh, the anti-Trumpers are making a big deal about Nikki Haley's polls. Now, I went back and looked at Real Clear Politics. There has, their polls, there haven't been any new polls posted. Trump has a 21.5-point lead, but there hasn't been any new polls for 2023. Trump's got 46%. Haley's got 25%. I mean, is this all kind of, pardon the phrase, trumped up, that Haley is closing in on Trump in New Hampshire? 
Yeah, well, they're taking advantage of the crazy way they do that primary, which this shouldn't be allowed. But in New Hampshire, anybody can vote in the Republican primary, independents, Democrats. So the Democrats will organize a ton of votes to come out for Nikki Haley just to embarrass yeah, they, Trump. But, yeah, but, uh, but hang on a second. Uh, the the uh, timetable's closed for Democrats. I mean, it was true. There are about 3,000 ballots, apparently. But the independents yeah, but the, are the swing. Yeah, but uh, 3,000 can make a big difference there, uh, as we've seen in certain counties. But uh, whatever Haley does in New Hampshire won't matter because by the time they get to South Carolina, Trump has a commanding lead. She'll be humiliated there, and that'll be the end of her campaign. Uh, Joe Concha, is that that the way you see it? That's the way I see it. And then the, the questions are going forward, you know, as far as Trump versus Biden, I'll just skip ahead to that part. Does the economy improve to the point where then suddenly that's not something that Trump can hit Biden with as hard. You look at some numbers, Larry, and the GDP was almost 5% in the third quarter. That was the last quarter that was reported. Unemployment's still low. It's at 3.7%. I get that people have multiple jobs, and that's not a good thing. But the the number is the number, right? Uh, So you you look at – some of these factors, inflation is still too high. It's 250 percent higher than it was when Trump took office, but it's still lower than it was a year ago, and they, they keep touting that. So I wonder if economy is good, if Gaza has an uneasy peace, if that helps, if you have other factors that, that go into Biden possibly winning, like, I don't know, Trump getting convicted, where a lot of people then say they can't vote for a felon, even if they like Trump. So as we sit here now, I would say Trump is – a touchdown favorite or so, and that's the real clear politics betting average. They have a 7.5% uh, favorite. But, however, if, if there's a conviction, rightly or wrongly, and I think all of these, obviously, this is a weaponization of the justice system by, by Jack Smith and others, if that happens, then that's, that's something like COVID, like something that we can't even predict what the reaction will mm-hmm. be. So it, it's not a slam dunk as far as Trump's concerned. And Republicans should be wary about the abortion issue as well, because that's still out there, and that's still some people are just one-issue voters, and as long as that's out there, some women will not come over to the Republican side. This is a non-sequitur, given your excellent rundown just now, with which I basically agree. But Mark, Mark Simone, what if Nikki Haley wins in New Hampshire? Wins. Is that possible? Uh, I don't think it's possible. But, again, all the independents, whoever – could get her close. So it's not a 20-point loss. It could be a four-point loss. But what if a again, lot of independents vote for Trump? Yeah, are, the, the problem if, is the bulk of the population in New Hampshire is in the southern portion. It's very oh, liberal. It's, yeah. it's a suburb of Boston, basically. So that's the problem for Trump there. But the next primary will correct all that. All right. Mark Simone, 710WOR radio host. Joe Concha of The Messenger and Fox News. Great rundown, gentlemen. Thank you very much. Happy New Year, folks. We'll take a quick break. On the other side of the break, John Carney of Breitbart News. We'll talk about jobs and also the great Breitbart interview with Donald Trump. I'm Kudlow. Stick around. Lots more to do. The Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. So we had a big jobs report yesterday for the month of December. Non-farm payrolls up 216,000. However, 
the small business household survey from which the unemployment rate is derived, that thing fell 683,000. But the unemployment rate stayed at 3.7 as 676,000 people left the labor force. Go figure. Very odd report. And uh, private sector hiring looked pretty weak. So we're going to bring in our great friend John Carney, economics editor of Breitbart News, co-author of the Breitbart Business Digest. Uh, John Carney, welcome back. Um, I'm looking at your uh, very good report. You covered the waterfront. Jobs were weaker than they looked. That's right. We had a lot, and this has been something you and I have talked about before. There's been a lot of government hiring and then what I would call government-adjacent hiring, social mm-hmm. services, education, healthcare, not sort of cyclical, expansive parts of the economy uh, at all. And so what you're seeing is the cyclical, expansive parts of the economy are indeed slowing down in their hiring. Uh, there, you know, if you look through it, there was a lot of weakness. Actually, some surprising things that are so weak that I'm not sure I buy the numbers. Hmm. There was a, there was a, uh, in the transportation and warehouse parts. So this is like guys delivering stuff to your home. I don't know about you. I saw a lot of trucks out in the road delivering things in mm. December. So the idea that that lost jobs didn't seem to make sense to me, that could be a seasonal adjustment issue also, you know, meaning lots of people were hired in it, but they seasonally adjusted so much that it looks like a loss. Uh, in general, as our friend uh, Joe Lavornia has pointed out, um, it, there's a problem with these numbers. Uh, we've been seeing some very big revisions and we saw that this month, very big revisions to the past two months. We The response rates from the businesses and households that respond to these things don't uh, are, are very low. They were already falling before the pandemic, and they sort of fell off a cliff after the pandemic, which means there's a lot more estimation going into these numbers, especially mm. in the initial reports. So that's a problem also. You know, people don't understand that, John, just as, a, as an aside. Uh, the, the the surveys that the Bureau of Labor Statistics take uh, of human resource departments for large corporations and um, families, you know, small business owners, those those are small surveys, you know, 60, 80, 100,000. I think the non-farm, I think the corporate survey is about 150,000. The six, uh, there's, let's see, uh, 160 million Americans that work. Right. And the rest of it's all done by econometric modeling. I mean, that's why the revisions are so substantial later on. I mean, these are like very broad estimates of the picture, and you should live or die with them. And particularly when you've seen a lot of kind of wild fluctuations, as we have in the post-pandemic period, the models don't work as well, mm. uh, and so what we're so we, you're still thinking, oh well, you know, how would an economy be operating normally? But we have some parts of the economy that literally just in the past few months just got back to their pre-pandemic levels. So we saw a lot of hiring in leisure and hospitality, but that was a lot of that was just sort of rebuilding to where we had been. So this probably is throwing off a lot of the estimates, which is one of the reasons you have to 
uh, revise it so much, but then also the response rates coming from businesses. Businesses aren't answering the surveys from the Department of Labor Mm -hmm. as much as they did before. And that also means that lowers the quality of the survey, just like any poll, right? If you take an opinion poll and you get thousands of responses, you're going to have a better opinion poll than if you get hundreds of responses. And that's what we're seeing here. These are basically opinion polls, you know, not quite opinion polls, but something close to that about how the labor market is doing. So I noticed uh, whatever manufacturing hasn't produced any new jobs in a year, basically. And yeah, the ISM manufacturing report has been down, I don't know, whatever, 14, 15, 16 straight months. But you notice, again, going to Joe Lavornia, who's a very smart fella, the ISM services report was shockingly weak. That's right. That's the, we all knew that manufacturing has been more or less in a recession for most of the year. The services sector was the one that's supposed to be coming back. If you look at services X government uh, what you end up with is a very weak December number. Uh, and that is troubling because that is the part of the economy that should be uh, less responsive to higher interest rates um, and because people don't borrow to get services done as much and also didn't have the boom that manufacturing did when we first came out of the pandemic. So we thought that that would keep expanding. It has slowed down a lot. So that is also troubling. So core private job growth, only 41,000 on the three-month moving average. Temp hiring uh, also soft. Uh, by the way, more people working uh, multiple jobs, John. That's another one, uh, something like yeah. 8.5 million, which is a new record. What does this mean for Federal Reserve policy, do you think? Well, so I think it actually can it, – it's very complex. So it means that hiring was weaker than expected, but – One of the problems is that all of the government hiring doesn't really add to the production of goods and services. So we're not increasing supply of priced goods in the economy when we do a lot of government hiring. But we are increasing demand because all those government workers still have to buy groceries and get haircuts and, you know, and buy lawnmowers and snowblowers. So the all of the demand keeps increasing when you increase government share of hiring, but supply does not. So I think actually the Fed should look at this and say, all right, this is a problem. This is actually a, even though hiring is weaker than it appears, it's a very inflationary report Mm. because the parts of hiring that are strong don't actually add goods and services to the economy. Well, I liked your point. You know, the government workforce, which has been the leading job creator in the last year or more, uh, they may not produce anything, but they spend a lot. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> right? I mean, it's just, so they're adding to demand. They're not adding to supply. So the Fed's got to keep an eye on that. That's right. The Fed should keep an eye on that. And they. the other thing is that they're less likely to pull back in because of fear of an economic downturn, mm-hmm. because there is nothing as safe as a government job. Mm-hmm. And so they keep spending even when – you know, those of us in the private sector would normally say, oh, I see trouble ahead. I better start saving a little more money. They don't have to protectively save the way the private sector does. So the net net is uh, you think the Fed will start cutting in. Well, let's see. There's a January meeting, is there not? They're not going to cut yes. in January. 
Then no, they, that would be insane if they cut it in January. Uh, right. I don't think they will. And the, what, the next meeting after that is March? The next meeting is March, mid-March. And uh, I th- the market right now thinks there's a 70% chance that they're going to cut. Hmm. I, think that's, I think that's way too generous. We only have two more jobs reports. This one, the headline was strong. And as I was saying, if you dig deep into it, it's not great news about the economy, but it's worse news about inflation. So I think the Fed would will probably wait until this summer. And they're not going to, you know, like just cutting in March just seems, especially when there's no, you know, the economy is still expanding. We just, there's no need to cut, right? There's not, there's not a pressing crash happening that they would have to cut. Unemployment is 3.7%. Why would you need to cut? I think it's an option to cut, and I think they're not going to take that option until May or June or July, sometime down the road. Unless you want to juice the economy for Biden, which is what Donald Trump told you and Alex Marlowe. That's right. It looks very political if they start cutting early. And (laughs) even worse, this is a point I made in Breitbart Business Digest, even worse, if they start cutting now and inflation kicks up, Then they will be in the position of having cut during the election year. And, you know, I think Donald Trump will be elected president in November and then having to raise right after Donald Trump comes into office will make them look so partisan and so political that I actually think it will be a threat to the structure of the Fed right now if they were to Mm. do that. By the way, the segment with you and uh, Alex Marlowe just worked so beautifully. And uh, we can't thank you enough. Folks, we're talking to John Carney, Breitbart News Editor and co-author of the Breitbart Business Digest. Thank you, John. See you this week. Folks, we're going to take a break. Other side, we've got legal beagle Greg Jarrett, Fox News legal analyst. The Supreme Court is going to take a look at the Colorado decision to uh, disqualify Donald Trump from the ballot. I know, Joe Biden is the the defender of democracy. We'll see what Greg has to say about it. I'm Kudlow. Straight ahead, we'll be right back. This is the Larry Kudlow Show on 77 WABC. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. So, Colorado... State Supreme Court tried to ban Donald Trump, tried to disqualify him from the ballot on grounds of insurrection, even though he was neither charged nor convicted. The Supreme Court is going to take a look at it. We were told yesterday, February 8th, oral arguments. We bring in my friend Greg Jarrett, Fox News legal analyst and New York Times bestselling author. Uh, His latest book is The Constitution of the United States and Other Patriotic Documents. Greg, Happy New Year, first of all. And and you too, Larry. Thank you. So uh, run through what you're thinking about the Colorado disqualification going to the Supremes. How's this going to work? Well, you know, I wrote this book on the Constitution, and uh, the timing couldn't have been better because this is a full – frontal assault on the Constitution by Colorado, by Maine. It's an attack on our democratic principles. It is it is nothing short of election interference, ballot rigging, uh, disenfranchising voters. Uh, 
depriving them of the opportunity to choose who they want to vote for, which is in the Constitution. Uh, All of this is happening because Democrats read the polls, and they know that Joe Biden is immensely unpopular. And they're they're so terrified, Larry, that he's going to lose to Donald Trump that they're willing to win by hook or by crook. Um, and, And to do that, they have bastardized the meaning of the 14th Amendment doesn't apply to the position of president. That's quite clear. Uh, Second of all, um, they're depriving Trump of the right to due process, guaranteed by that very amendment, because he hasn't been charged or tried or or convicted of insurrection. Why? Um, Because it wasn't an insurrection, principally. Uh, And second of all, he didn't incite it. Uh, The evidence doesn't support that. And finally, You know, the 14th Amendment is not self-executing. It's not executed by the states. Uh, Read Section 5. It says that Congress has the power to enforce it, which it did when it codified insurrection as a criminal offense, which, again, Trump hasn't been charged with. But, Greg, yesterday Joe Biden gave a speech saying he was going to protect democracy. You know, he opened his election campaign adopting the predictable trope that Trump is a threat to democracy. You know, Larry, that's that's the same canard that Joe peddled when he stood before the ominous blood red backdrop, Mm. uh, you know, and predicted Mm. that America would die unless he was its permanent dear leader. Uh, You know, and so yesterday he did it at Valley Forge, which insults the memory of the men led by George Washington uh, at the birthplace of the American army during the Revolutionary War. And and he had the audacity, Biden, to liken himself to George Washington, Mm. which is laughable. A serial plagiarist from Delaware thinks he's comparable to the great leader who who famously crossed the Delaware. It shows how demented Joe Biden is. And the other point, uh, I I don't know if this is ever going to reach legal status, but Joe Biden and the Democratic National Committee have canceled the Florida State Democratic primary, and they're keeping everybody off the ballot of the North Carolina uh, Democratic primary. And they won't let this guy, Dean Phillips, from Minnesota, congressman from Minnesota, they don't want him. They're trying to stop him from running in every single primary. I mean, you know, at at a minimum, it's ironic. All right. At at a maximum, it's just it's anti-democracy. It really is. And it's shameful. And to to think that Joe Biden. Uh, imagines he can get away with it Mm -hmm. uh, is just ludicrous. I mean, look, the Supreme Court's going to take this case. Any first-year law student uh, could easily decide it. Uh, There's no issue here. It's a no-brainer. It's a, you know, to use a basketball analogy, a slam dunk is like lowering the basket for LeBron James to five feet. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, this this should be a nine-to-nothing easy decision. Frankly, they should just issue one sentence that says the Colorado Supreme Court is stupid Mm. and we reverse. Mm. That's what they should do. Mm. Interesting. Um, Greg Jarrett, what what next on the Trump indictment saga? What what should we be looking for next, do you think? 
Well, I think you've you've certainly got, uh, you know, the immunity claim that's being litigated uh, in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, Mm -hmm. I I don't see Trump winning that one, quite Mm -hmm. frankly. Um, And then you've got a flurry of different cases, one in Florida that's hobbled by the fact that they can't actually present uh, evidence to the jurors who were not cleared for uh, top-secret confidential information. I don't know how they're going to remedy that one. Uh, and then, you know, you've got the case in New York, uh, Alvin Bragg, which is ludicrous, equally crazy as the case in, in Florida. But, you know, Trump's got to litigate these cases. And, you know, we'll just have to wait and see whether any of them actually uh, affect the election itself or do just the opposite, uh, simply reinforce support for Donald Trump because people view him as a victim. Uh, of an administrative state that has weaponized their powers to try to interfere in an election. Greg, if uh, if if Trump's turned down on the immunity plea, um, that is the D.C. Court of Appeals, or do I have that wrong? Yeah, it's the D.C. Circuit Court, the full court, um, and... You know, they are the intermediate court before you get to the U.S. Supreme Court on the issue of immunity. Uh, so, you know, we'll, we'll wait and see how this, you know, ends up. But that's not a winning argument, you know, unfortunately for Trump. Um, but, you know, it, it doesn't negate the fact that Jack Smith uh, is a guy who has brought these two federal cases against Trump for purely partisan political reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, he, and he did it at the behest of Joe Biden, who, you know, leaked in a big-time story to the New York Times that he wanted Donald Trump prosecuted. So Merrick Garland appointed Jack Smith to do it. And uh, they appointed him because this is a guy who has an unsupportable record of being unprincipled and unscrupulous to manipulate the law, to engineer uh, wrongful convictions. He did it in the Governor Bob McDonald case. That's why they picked Jack Smith. And just uh, quickly, 40 seconds, um, if the D.C. court rules against Trump, does he take it to the Supremes? Yeah, he absolutely uh, would, but I'm not sure they'll even take the case. They may let the lower court decision stand. Right. Uh, so, you know, wait and see. You betcha. Greg Jarrett, Fox News legal analyst. Greg's latest book, The Constitution of the United States and Other Patriotic Documents. Happy New Year, Greg. Thank you. You Folks, a quick break. On the other side, Senator Ron Johnson is going to weigh in on democracy, on on the border, on politics. I'm Kudlow. Please stick around. Lots more cooking. Street to the White House. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. More on uh, politics and this uh, President Biden's speech yesterday and the catastrophe down at the southern border, which Mr. Biden doesn't want to talk about. And we are fortunate enough to have 
Senator Ron Johnson of the great state of Wisconsin. Senator Johnson, you're very gracious, and I want to wish you a happy new year, sir. Well, Larry, a happy new year to you as well. Thank you. So um, I'm sure you either saw or read about uh, Mr. Biden's speech yesterday at Valley Forge or someplace near Valley Forge or Philadelphia or wherever the heck it was. Um, Donald Trump is the enemy of democracy and Joe Biden is the savior of democracy. Did I get that right, Senator Johnson? Yes. And first of all, I have to blame you because you invited me on to talk about this. So I actually had to watch that speech and it was, <laughs> and it was painful. It was painful to listen to, but as your previous guest said, when he was quoting Saul Linsky, this is classic tactics by the left. Huh. They falsely accused their political opponents of exactly what they were doing. You know, there, there was a litany there, about uh, two thirds into the speech. And I just want to give you some of the uh, phrases from that litany. He said, "You know, people that are undermining this democracy, in other words, MAGA Republicans." He said, "We exploit fear." Well, that's what the left has done with climate change, with the pandemic, trafficking lies. I mean, do you know a president that has lied through his teeth as much as President Biden has? They told for power and profit, driven by grievance and grift. I mean, the Bidens are the greatest grifters that have ever occupied the White House. Hmm. I said, you know, they're consumed by conspiracy and victimhood. I mean, that's the entire agenda of the left is victimhood and dividing America. And they seek to bury history. It's the left that is taking down all these statues and trying to bury American history. So, again, it is grotesque to have to listen to the president. He also, you know, talk about hyperbole. On January 6th, and, you know, I'd like to know who the first person was that coined the phrase thousands of armed insurrectionists. Uh-huh. And, you know, the left is really good at it. They, they come up with these phrases and they all mimic the same phrase. It, it was like this pre, pre-planned. And then everybody mimicked it. That's not what an insurrection would look like. And they're saying we're in thousands of armed insurrectionists. But that took hold in the media. And let me just continue this filibuster a little bit longer. Yeah. Um, he talked about 140 police officers who were injured, and we all condemn that. You know, there, there was nobody on the right that liked to see what happened on January 6th in terms of the violence. But uh, we condemned it. Where was the left? Where, where was President Biden? Where was Vice President Kamala Harris during the riots, the more than 570 riots during the summer of 2020? There were 2,000 police officers injured during those riots. A couple dozen people lost their lives, three in Kenosha, Wisconsin. One to two billion dollars of property damage. And then, then President Biden goes, you know, political violence is never, ever acceptable. But they accepted that. His yeah. vice president actually encouraged people to give to the, the bail funds of the Minneapolis rioters. Multiple uh, Democrat politicians encouraged the rioting. Uh, so, that, that, you know, it was more than justified. Of course, those were peaceful protests. That, that wasn't an insurrection. The, the couple hours of occupying the Capitol, and that's where it was. It was a couple hours of occupying the Capitol with those rioters staying within the rope lines, uh, most, of the, most of them being peaceful, okay? Um, that's the insurrection. I'm telling you, that's not what an insurrection looks like. So, again, this is hyperbole on the part of the left using Solinsky's techniques, falsely accuse your political opponents of exactly what it is you do, but – they get away with it because the media, by and large, are advocates of the left themselves, and they carry their water for them. That's our that's problem. That's, that's the biggest danger to our democracy is a dishonest and highly biased to the left media. That's a great filibuster, Senator Johnson. Anytime. That was a terrific filibuster. Uh, I appreciate it very much. 
What's the impact of this speech? Is there any political impact? I mean, let's hope not. I mean, <laughs> I think most people would have taken, you know, my, my position, never even thought of tuning into it unless they're going to go on your radio show. So <laughs> you know, my, my guess is it's just you know, water off a duck's back. Um, and it'll, it'll hopefully go down the dustbin of history of just a, you know, just a stupid and awful speech. Let me uh, switch gears for a second, uh, go down to the uh, border catastrophe. Uh, in the Senate, Senator Johnson, is there anything going on? It's very hard to get, you know, we had a reporter on the TV show last night. It's very hard to find any serious negotiations. Uh, and I wondered if you could fill us in. Is it, I mean, this cannot continue 300,000 plus in December. Lord knows how many are going to come over in January. The door is still open. Uh, my uh, Mayorkas, actually, the House uh, may look into an impeachment of Mayorkas this coming week. Is there anything happening to negotiate the border? Well, there are negotiations. I think the question is, are they serious? You know, I think from our side, we want to do everything we can to close the border, secure it. The problem is we're, we're working with the Democrat Party, led by President Biden, that caused the problem. You know, they want an open border. I mean, every Democrat in the Senate, except for Joe Manchin, voted against just completing the fence that we'd already bought and paid for that cost us, le- cost us more not building it. Mm. So the Democrat Party, they want an open border. They, they want, you know, a, a new world order. They, they want a borderless globe. And so that's what they're pushing for. So, I mean, these, these are the people that are allowed in, more than 6 million people. 1.7 million are what they call known gotaways, but that's a misnomer. We, we just detect them. We have no idea where, who those people are. We don't know where most of the 6 million people are. This is a catastrophe, not just for New York City or Chicago, but for small towns throughout America, the drug trafficking, the sex trafficking, the human trafficking. Now, so this is a clear and present danger to America, but we need a president who actually wants to secure the border. We don't have one. So as they're trying to negotiate you know, all this complex language and putting in different triggers, that type of thing, I don't know who they expect are going to implement this language. I don't think we can count on President Biden to faithfully execute the law. I don't think we have enough Border Patrol at this point in time. You know, when Trump was dealing with this, at most, for one month, we had almost 5,000 people a day. But he, he basically closed the border in 12 months, down to, down to about 500 a day by April 2020. Now we're up to over 10,000 per day average over the last month. One day, 14,500. It's an order of magnitude worse than when President Obama declared it a humanitarian crisis. And, and his Secretary of Homeland Security said that uh, 1,000 people, they overwhelmed the system. Well, it's overwhelmed by an order of magnitude. So to my, to my mind, this is unprecedented. It's going to require unprecedented action. We have to seal the border using every amount of resource, every type of manpower we can muster, and just say, you're not going to, we're not going to let you in. You cannot come to America and get in anymore. I'm sorry. We just we have to stop this. Um, th- during the holiday, uh, Secretary of State Blinken and the DHS Secretary Mayorkas went down to Mexico to meet with uh, AMLO, uh, President Obrador. From what I gather, nothing happened. Nothing came of that. No, because, again, the solution has always been for Biden is to be able to process and disperse more rapidly. The solution out of uh, AMLO and out of the big city mayors is we just need more federal government funding. Send more money down to Central America. And all that's going to do is incentivize a larger flow. You know, if, if we support the sanctuary cities, 
we're going to be taking care of the migrants. They have cell phones. They can call back and say, hey, get to the border. Literally, we were on a plane in eight hours. That's their goal, to process and disperse within eight hours. It's just going to open up the flow. It's going to incentivize. It's going to exacerbate the problem. Where is um, Senator Chuck Schumer, the majority leader on this? Well, he wants you know the, the war funding for Ukraine, for Israel, for Taiwan. They want to package it all together because there's a controversy in some of those things. And uh, you know, McConnell has been saying, "Well, if we're going to do that, we better get border security." But I'm afraid he's taken the position of the Wall Street Journal. It pains me to say this, that it'd be a win-win if you get Ukraine funding and then modest immigration reform. Oh, modest no. immigration reform is not going to work. And, and right. we literally, as Republicans, are going to look like Charlie Brown to the left's Lucy if we agree to something that's, that doesn't actually secure the border, which is why I've been uh, suggesting we need benchmarks. We, we need to hold the administration accountable for actually reducing the mm. flow stopping the flow over, I'd say, a 12-month period. Trump did it. We ought to be able to do it, too. Well, I interviewed um, House Speaker Mike Johnson. He was down at the border at Eagle Pass, Texas. I interviewed him, I think it was Wednesday. But the point is, he's he's fighting hard. He wants H.R. 2, which is the House bill, which is, you know, build the, complete the wall, remain in Mexico, and so forth, uh, catch and deport. Now, that's, he's he said to me, I said, are you going to hang tough? And he said he was going to hang tough. Seems to me he's got to get with Joe Biden. There's going to have to be some kind of meeting, some kind of confrontation. I'm completely supportive of passing H.R. 2 or, or, and stronger language. The point I'm making is at this point in time, we don't have enough personnel to implement that language. Mm. And we don't have a president who's willing to do it either. Again, you, you see this president just ignoring Supreme Court rulings. The, the Supreme Court says the eviction moratorium is unconstitutional. He just extended it, said forgiving student loans is, un, is unconstitutional. He can, can, continues to forgive them. Mm. So, again, we, we've got a president who's the root cause of this problem, wants an open border. We're supposed to rely on him to faithfully execute even the good language of H.R. 2. Mm. I mean, we, we have to be realistic about this, which is why we need benchmarks that he has to hit in exchange for something he wants. And right now that seems to be Ukraine funding. And one last one, Senator Ron Johnson, and we appreciate it very, very much. Um, continuing resolution is going to come due pretty soon. Is there anything going on there? Not, not that I'm aware of. Apparently they're negotiating something. But you know, my best guess, and this wouldn't be the worst thing in the world, is just have a CR for the rest of the year and then focus this year on a functioning budget and appropriation process the way it should be carried out. You know, starting in February, March, April, pass a budget, have that guide the appropriation process, pass them in the House, pass them in the Senate, uh, reconcile those two bills in the conference committee and put them on the president's desk. Yeah. I, I think I, I, if I were to bet, that's where we're kind of going to end up at because I don't think uh, Speaker Johnson has the votes to, you know, basically get cave into what the Senate does. Senator Ron Johnson, you are the best. I mean it. Thank you ever so much for being so gracious with your time. Thank you for watching the TV speech. I'm sorry to put you through that, sir. Well, you owe me one, Larry. God bless you. Take care. I do. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it very much. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick break. On the other side of the break is my dear friend Heather McDonald, very, very critical of the Harvard Corporation and the whole Claudine Gay fiasco at uh, Harvard University. 
We'll talk with uh, Heather McDonald of the Manhattan Institute. I'm Kudlow. Please stick around. More coming. Larry Kudlow on 77 WABC. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. I'm still not ready to um, put the Claudine Gay Harvard fiasco to rest. And my old friend, dear friend, Heather McDonald, fellow at the Manhattan Institute, contributing editor at City Journal. Uh, Her book is When Race Trumps Merit, How the Pursuit of Equity Sacrifices Excellent, Destroys Beauty, and Threatens Lives. Heather, first of all, Happy New Year, love. Appreciate it very, very much. Well, it's a great way to start the new year talking to you, Larry. Thank you so much for having me on. All right. You're great. You know, this is a brilliant, uh, this uh, op-ed piece you wrote, uh, a brilliant piece, a tough piece. Uh, Claudine Gay got her job because of her race. Uh, Gay plays the race card to the end. No white professor, even a female one, would have been elevated to the premier college presidency in the United States on so meager a research record. I mean, Heather... um, I guess one question is, what's Harvard going to do about it? Because you're writing that there's really no change. And I just want to add, I had a long talk um, on the TV show this uh, week with um, uh, Senator Tommy Tuberville, former football coach. He taught, you know, he coached at four or five major schools, big schools. And, you know, coaches are teachers. But his point about all this was, unless the board changes or resigns, there is never going to be any change, whether that's Harvard or whatever school. And I think that's what you're suggesting in your piece. Well, yes, because the board, in its uh, letter announcing the gay resignation, insisted that uh, one of Harvard's main values is inclusiveness. And inclusiveness, Larry, is simply a code for vast racial preferences. Any institution that is telling you that it is prioritizing inclusiveness or diversity, these are synonyms, is telling you that it is discarded meritocratic excellence. Because the sad fact of the matter is, is that you can have meritocracy or you can have diversity. You cannot have both, thanks to the size of the academic skills gap, Uh, between blacks on the one hand and whites and Asians on the other. And, uh, you know, I'll just give you some numbers. Numbers are hard to take in on the phone, but the average black SAT score on a 1,600-point scale of math and, and, and reading, 800 each, the average black SAT score is 926 on a 1,600-point scale compared to the Asian SAT score, which is 1,220. So this is vast. And if the Harvard Corporation is saying it remains committed to this ideology of diversity, which means elevating people on the basis of race, not their academic competence, it's, the, it's a regime of mediocrity, nothing will change. And, and so what has to happen, first of all, let's, you should not apologize for not wanting to move beyond Claudine Gay. Let us enjoy what's about to happen, Larry. When, when students come back to Harvard, there is going to be a revolt among the black students and their allies, the same intersectional coalition that has been promoting Hamas terror attacks, they will accuse Harvard of racism for getting rid of Claudine Gay, which is absurd. Uh, Harvard is pro-black in everything it does. Every, every hiring 
faculty hiring search is all about trying to find remotely qualified blacks and females to hire. No college in this country, Larry, is discriminating against qualified blacks. It does not happen. And yet Gay pretends that she's this courageous pioneer who has overcome the ongoing legacy of white supremacy. It makes me sick. What's got to happen to change this, Larry, is the country has to swallow hard and look at the extent of the racial skills gap and unmask the diversity ideology for what it is, which is covering up big academic problems that we've got and elevating mediocrity instead of excellence. This is so important, folks. I just want to say it again. We're talking to Heather McDonald of the Manhattan Institute. Heather, is Harvard... uh, just dissing the Supreme Court decision in validating racial preferences? Yes, it it will diss it. And it announced this Lawrence Bacow, who was the president of Harvard before Claudine Gay, when the decision came out in the summer, he basically said, we're going to do everything we can to exploit a loophole in the John Roberts majority opinion in the racial preferences case, which said, well, of course, we can't prevent you from from looking at uh, how a student talks about race. And everything that Harvard has done since then has made it clear that it is going to continue uh, using race as a way to try to engineer its black population. The Har- Harvard itself, Larry, in 2013 did a study of its admissions policies, and Harvard discovered that if it admitted on the basis of academic skills without racial preferences, without giving a boost to blacks simply for being black, it would the, the black population would go from over 10% in 2013 to less than 1%. Mm. That that means that nine percent, like ninety ninety nine percent of all blacks at Harvard are there because of racial preferences. Mm. My God! And what about Heather? What about the anti semitism at Harvard? You know, I um, uh, I don't hear anyone still talking about that in the aftermath of uh, Gay's resignation. Well, you know, Larry, I'm going to be honest with you here. I think that is a phony issue. I think it's, it's a good way to get people's attention. But anti-Semitism on campus is simply a, a epiphenomenon of a much deeper problem, which is anti-Westernism. Jews are today reviled as the embodiment of Western civilization. It is Western civilization which is hated. You know, let's face it, Harvard is not literally anti-Semitic. Yes, the the number of of Jews have gone down at various schools like Harvard and University of Pennsylvania, not because Harvard is traditionally anti-Semitic, you know, with the wasp, oh, Jews are just not clubbable. No, it's because they're making room for underqualified blacks and Hispanics. And the irony is, of course, is that liberal Jews for decades have promoted racial preferences. They have taken the side of the left. They've got all these intersectional allies who are now turning on them and stabbing them in the back over Hamas. But the problem is not that Harvard is anti-Semitic. The problem is that Harvard believes that diversity and race should trump academic excellence. And your other point in here, which is so important, is that Claudine Gay, as an administrator and briefly as president, has put in and overseen and expanded this DEI system, which is essentially oh. unbreakable. She's been terrible, and, and she, she, she auditioned for the job when she was dean of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences uh, by announcing in the, in the usual post-George Floyd 
psychotic breakdown that took over all of American institutions in the summer of 2020, that she was going to make Harvard the premier anti-racist institution. It has already made race and, and the fight against alleged white supremacy a lodestar, but it was going to get even worse under her, or better if you're an intersectionalist. Uh, and she, she was true to her word. Uh, the, the Harvard Corporation, in, in, in announcing a resignation, said, you know, she has taken our scholarship into new frontiers of research into inequality, which means racial inequality. Uh, and, you know, she, she instituted a, a real uh, reign of terror there. A physicist yeah. just said, you know, we're, we're operating in a police state here. Anybody yeah. who disagrees with the racial ideology is out. Heather McDonald, my God, so good, so tough. I love it. Heather McDonald, everybody, from the Manhattan Institute. Uh, take a look at this column. It's unbelievable. Onward with inclusiveness. Thank you, Heather Love. Talk soon. Folks, we'll take a break. On the side of the break, we're going to do some stock market work. I'm Cudlow. My God, Harvard, DEI. What a big mess. Whoa. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. By the way, you can join us during the week on Fox Business. The name of the show is Kudlow. It plays every day, 4 to 5 p.m. Repeat at 7. You can DBR us by texting your favorite 9-year-old. She'll show you how to do it. And here... You can live stream us on the internet, LarryCudlowShow.com. LarryCudlowShow.com runs all across the country, around the world, throughout the solar system, including the Milky Way. So we've looked at a lot of things today. We're going to hit the stock market now. Kind of a dull week, the first week of the new year. Dow's off 200 points, 223 points. The S&P was down a wee bit, 73 points. Last year was a very good year, as we know, as markets up about 24-25%. Interest rates uh, did start to edge higher. There's all kinds of cross-currents, whether the Fed will or will not ease, or whether they'll be aggressive. What's the outlook for profits in the economy? So let's jump in. Jack Berusian with us, chairman of the Global Smart Commodity Group. Mike Ozanian with us. Assistant Managing Editor of Forbes Media and co-host of Forbes Sports Money on the Yes Network. First thing I want to say is Happy New Year to both of you, very old and dear friends. And um, G. Willikers, Mike Ozanian, what's going on here? I mean, there's, you know, a lot of cross-currents. And we had a jobs number yesterday. You know, you had to look under the hood. Was it a strong number? It probably wasn't near as strong as people thought. Why should the Fed be easing aggressively this year? That might get him into political trouble, uh, juicing the election for Joe Biden because the economy is not yet in a recession, or maybe we're heading for a deflationary recession. I don't know. Michael Zanian, you probably know. Uh, happy New Year, Larry, and Happy New Year to my good friend Jack. Um, under normal times, I would agree that uh, if the Fed were to cut going into an election year, 
it would be viewed as very political and uh, well, it would still be viewed as very political, but the Fed would be concerned about perhaps tainting its reputation and its independence and so forth. Um, but based on a lot of things that are going on right now, I, I, I think we could say these are not normal times, uh, uh, politically speaking. That's my personal feeling. Um, I, I think that if you look at where Wall Street is, what Wall Street is betting, and I think they are betting for the Fed to cut rates next year. I don't know if it'll be as early as March, but I think it'll be sooner rather than later next year. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think they really are that concerned about the political ramifications. I think the jobs report, actually, if you look at it closely, particularly as it pertains to private sector jobs, I, I think it was pretty bad. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, mm -hmm. I think that, you know, the, the earnings outlook is what, in all of this, is what I find uh, most troubling to believe. That is, they're looking for in 2024 the S&P to grow earnings 11.5%. Mm. And if you look at the rate of growth in the economy, which is very modest, uh, unless you're a believer in huge gains in productivity throughout 2024, I, I find that hard to believe. So I, I'm, in a general sense, bearish on the market, even if the Fed does cut. Uh, I think you could see long rates, the 10-year stay well above 5%. And if you, no matter how you measure it, Larry, whether it's price to sales, market cap to GDP, price to earnings, stocks are very expensive right now. So uh, I'm, I'm very cautious in the aggregate. No, that's a good wrap-up. Jack Bruggen, uh you have any disagreements with that outlook? Or what is your, and I'm especially interested in your, commodity view because you're an expert trader there um commodities look kind of soft to me well uh first of all happy new year to both of you and and merry christmas mike it's armenian christmas today so, uh, so merry christmas to all my armenian brothers and sisters um look you know uh last year towards the end of the year and it, about a month ago i was on your on your show and we were talking about how we were looking at a blow-off top or at least in my mind what was looking like a blow-off top one of the reasons, and I want to explain this to people that are listening, is because people that were trading and buying the market were people that actually had to buy the market. Portfolio managers that were underinvested, they were underperforming. Those that were long were sitting back and just enjoying the ride. Now reality is starting to set in. Uh, the fact is that Michael is 100% right. This market is way overpriced. It's overpriced in every regard when you look at it. But more importantly, something is happening, especially this first week. You know, you, you called it a boring week. I call it a very insightful week. Uh, the first week of the year, as we know, uh, as historians of the market, is the way January goes. And as January goes, goes the year. You're looking at a market right now that is scared. It's starting to act scared. We saw, uh, especially with the NASDAQ, what happened this week. You saw a good 3 4% almost come off immediately off of that market. Now, there are a couple of things at play. You mentioned commodities, uh, and, and you're right. Commodities are soft. We're looking at some of the beans are no longer in the teens. You know, we used to talk about soybeans always being in the teens, and that was the, the, the first sign of inflation. Well, now they're no longer there. They were, they were trading as, as high as $17 at one time. 
So now, what is happening? Well, the reality is that we're starting to price in a real slowdown. And more importantly, we're starting to price in a disinflationary slowdown, which Mm. in my mind is probably a scarier scenario for this Fed. Now, the one other thing that I'll add to that is, you know, you have a Fed right now that that just pre-announced the Fed chairman's going to leave. There was a reason for that, all right, because now he's got his handcuffs off. He can do whatever he has to do, or in this case, not do what the market wants him to when do. When was this pre-announcement? Is, what was what well, announcement? He, he basically he came out and said, "I'm not gonna, uh, I, I'm not gonna." Uh, I when don't did he? Be. When did he say that? I missed that. It, it, was, it was over the last week or two. Huh? It was one of he the things that? the market reacted to immediately, and over the course of the weekend, it was the buzz on the floor. Uh, that, I missed that. No I completely missed that. Yep, and and it was, I, and a lot of it was to take the politics out of the Fed over the course of these next few months. So in my mind, and, and, and let's say I'm, I'm 100% right with what the floor and the, and the rumor mill has been saying. Well, then it gives, it gives him carte blanche to be able to do exactly what he wants to do, and that is defeat inflation, make sure you get it down to its right levels, and not worry about getting reappointed. And, and you know, quite frankly, that's probably his – you know, if that's the case – it's going to put us in the best possible situation as far as the Fed goes. So that's it. I missed that. I'm going to have to look up, look that up. Where did he say that, Jack? He said that in an interview, I believe, right yeah. before the end of the year. And it's wow. one of the reasons. It's one when I talked to a lot of portfolio managers and they were selling. It was the immediate first, one of the first of two reasons, aside from the market being overbought, that they were getting into some cash. So that's very interesting. So your hypothesis, and we'll get Mr. Rosanian on this, is that Jay will got, try to guide the Fed to 2% inflation or less, no funny business, no premature easing, which I think is a sound position, I might add, uh, given the stubbornness of inflation. But that's basically what you're saying, and that may disappoint uh, stock market investors. It's going to be painful. Uh, mm-hmm. You know what? We could see the market sell off 30 40%, but then again, that's what happens You know, when you've got uh, what, uh, $30 trillion in debt and servicing the debt is as much as the military budget now. I mean, something's got to give. Yeah, well, debt, uh, debt service, you're quite right, is one, uh, over $1 trillion. Mike Ozanian, had you seen that, uh, Jay Powell? No, I, I, I did not see that. I, I think I, Jack Bruggen's breaking well. some news here. He's really breaking some news on <laughs> <laughs> the story. But that's an interesting hypothesis. I mean, if, yeah, if no, that's – no, go ahead, Mike. No, I was going to say it absolutely – it absolutely is. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking sort of uh, – as Jack was describing that, I was thinking sort of the way the dollar and gold has been acting over the past week or so. And that would sort of support Jack's take because the mm-hmm. dollar has gotten stronger mm-hmm. a, a little bit and, and gold uh, gold has gotten weaker. Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, you know, that, that to me uh, would support Jack's thesis. That is, uh, um, Jack, what's Dr. Copper doing? I, I have it. Well, let I, me just look. I have it down 2%, 2.3 for the week. I think that's what it was. Is, is, is copper been trending lower? Copper has been trending lower. Um, so have a lot of the, the commodities. But, well, gold and, and silver have been staying up. I mean, they came off a little bit. Uh, but when you look at the, these hard commodities, the ones that make a difference, you know, whether it be lumber, whether it be copper, the ones that, that you see for builders, 
um, they're fairly stable now. You, you're starting to see a lot of the, the, the peak inflation, obviously, has come way off. Uh, but more importantly, and this is something to keep in mind, um, what was what is important is that wage inflation, which mm. really came along with that, is sticky. Yeah. And and that's part of what we saw come out in that number yesterday that scared a lot of market players. Well, you know, you talk about the market, everybody talks about everything else, but they don't really talk about wages that much. These wages have been going up year over year, and, and those are hard. You will not see wages come off. You'll see jobs disappear, but you will not see wages come off. I will say um, three cyclical indexes. The Sox index chips down almost 6% for the week. That's a big drop. Home builders down almost 2%, and retailers down 3.5%. So first week of January, you're right. That's that's difficult, uh, tough stuff. Uh, what's the oil story, Jack Bergen? How do you see oil? I think oil is the big, uh, the, the big mystery market. It was up, but if you know that something's happening, I, you know, every time somebody comes out and says they're going to cut production, uh, we end up with a little bit more coming out of the United States. Mm-hmm. And, and that is something which I love. I love the fact that, you know what, Biden is lying to his own constituents. Right? <laughs> you know what, here, here he is talking about how we're going to go green, everything is going to go electric, and they are pumping more oil than we have ever pumped in our existence as a country. And, uh, you know, I love that. Now, having said that to you, we're also buying our own oil because we're, we're now filling up the, you know, the, 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 the reserves uh, right. and, and, you know, all of that. But, but the reality is that I love the fact that, you know, on the one hand, uh, you know, he, he is Mr. You know, Ecology, Mr. Green President. On the other hand, uh, you know, we're doing what we should be doing, and that is we're pumping as hard as we can. Well, Michael Zaney, I just want to – we're at 13.2 – 13.2 million barrels a day. That is a new record. Uh, pre-pandemic, we were at 13.1. But really, I'm not that excited about it because uh, we should be at 14 or 15 million barrels. I mean, we haven't moved in several years. So I think, yeah, I, I, I tend issue. to look at it. Yeah, I, I tend to look at it uh, not so much as are we at a record high, but are we producing as much as we could be? And how does it fit into the overall energy picture in terms of natural gas, fracking, and all of that? I I think that's, you know, uh, we like to, I like to, I'll put it on myself, often use words like energy independence and and that sort of thing. But when you're looking at any economy as a whole, and energy is such a huge part of it, not just because you know, for cars and heating and that, but just because it goes into so many other products. Yes. The question is, are we maximizing what we could be producing? And we're so off on that, uh, in my opinion. We could be producing so much more. And, and I think that's that's really the problem. And, and, and in the prior administration, we were not. We were towards maximizing it. And I, and I think that's a, that's a big difference. And, and I also think that it, it sort of, it's one of the reasons why I'm very concerned about the manufacturing sector being so weak and, and, and how mm-hmm. I think that even dovetails into, you know, the private sector jobs report being so weak. I, I think it all fits together. And I think that's, you know, to sum up, I think that's why I'm very uh, bearish on this year in terms of hitting that 11 12% earnings growth that everybody's talking about for the S&P, because I, I think all this is going to filter through and, and weigh down on that. 
Yeah, I think there's some irrational exuberance in the stock market after the strong close of uh, last year. All right, let's take a quick break, and we'll come back and uh, get some picks. Jack Berugian of the Global Smart Commodity Group, Mike Ozanian, uh, assistant managing editor of Forbes Media, and co-host of Forbes Sports Money on the Yes Network. I'm Kudlow. We'll be back more on stocks. This is the Larry Kudlow Show on 77 WABC. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking stocks with Jack Berusian, chairman of the Global Smart Commodity Group, and Michael Zanian, assistant managing editor of Forbes Media, and co-host of Forbes Sports Money, which plays on the Yes Network. Mike Ozanian, uh, if multiples are too high and profit estimates are too good, what do you do? Do you go active or do you stay passive? I mean, do, do you try to outtime the market? What What do you do here? I've had a market timer, uh, but uh, I, there are some very good select businesses, some very well-run companies that are not that expensive right now. So I love Texas Instruments. It's a bit of a contrarian play because their earnings and revenue have been down recently. But they've been spending a ton, a ton on CapEx, new plants in Texas, Utah. And it's kind of an AI play because, as you guys know, the chips are using artificial intelligence. It has a nice yield of over 3%. Hmm. And, I, and I think – I also think that uh, uh, probably around the end of the first quarter of this year – that the bank lending margins, you know, those net interest margins that we pay so much attention to uh, for banks, I think they've been under they've been under a lot of pressure the last uh, few quarters. But I think the worst is nearly over. So I look at some bank stocks. I, I really like uh, Bank of America and J.P. Morgan Chase. I spoke to some analysts uh, during the week, and they feel that. Those two are a lot less likely than other lenders to face significant loan losses uh, should the economy start to falter. Well, that reminds me, uh, Jack Berugian. I mean, we haven't mentioned the fact that the yield curve is still very deeply inverted. I mean, I'm looking at the three-month Treasury bill is 536. The 10-year note is 405. I mean, that's a big inversion. Now, that model, the New York Fed model, down through the years has held up very well. That's a predictor of a recession, which no one is talking about. Uh, no one virtually is talking about a recession. Well, uh, you, you know, the, the, reason, the reason, Larry, is because we've become like city rats. We've become immune. You know, we've been watching it, and, and now we're so used to instant gratification. Everybody mm -hmm. saw it invert, and they assumed that the, we were going to see a recession a month or two later, and it didn't happen. So we said, ah, it's not working. Uh, but th here's the reality. We know what we want. As a market participant, we want low inflation, stable markets, rate cuts, higher earnings. But the reality is that, you know, we, we really don't have that. We've got disinflation. We've got volatility in these markets, serious volatility. We've got higher for longer with these rate cuts. And earnings, quite frankly, are, are going to have some trouble. You know, I mean, Michael just mentioned, you know, AI. You know, we've really priced AI into a lot of these stocks. You know, and the reality is that we're just now figuring out how to use AI with the S&P 500 companies. You know, it's the number one question at every boardroom. How are we using AI? Well, they really have not figured it out yet, you know, other than just generative AI or large language models. So all of that still has to play out. 
Isn't it uh, the application of AI longer term is potentially very bullish, though? It's bullish for productivity. It's bullish for profits. It's bullish for worker wages. And remember here, we're talking about Chicago, which is the, the, the hub of financial AI. This is where it was really created. This mm-hmm. is where you traded markets and you had, you had models that learned uh, from other models. and it kept, So it was really the genesis, and hopefully it will be one day, the, gen, the, the, the hub of, of, of financial AI here in, in America. But, but more importantly, you're, you're 100% right. When you take that model that we now created for markets and put them into an S&P 500 corporation, you really change that complexion mm. of the market. You All change right. the complexion of that corporation. Jack Perusian, Global Smart Commodity Group, Michael Zanian, Forbes, and Sports Money on the S-Network. Thank you, gentlemen. Happy New Year again. Folks, I'm Kudlow. We'll come back with Money in Politics. Liz Peek and John McIntyre, Real Clear Politics. Stick around. More coming. Street to the White House. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Let's do some money and politics. We got Liz Peak, Fox News contributor, syndicated columnist, and we've got my pal John McIntyre, president and CEO of Real Clear Politics and Real Clear Media. Uh, welcome, kids. First of all, Happy New Year to both of you. Thanks for doing this. Um, Liz, I want to start with you. You're, I read your column, you know, maybe this uh, whole fiasco with Claudine Gay at Harvard is going to somehow turn back DEI. And I want to tell you, uh, I want to raise this again. I had uh, Heather McDonald on uh, from the Manhattan Institute. I think you both know her. She's a fearless, brilliant woman. And she just tore in to Harvard and Claudine Gay for that matter. But the key point she made is that the Harvard Corporation, the board, is completely locked in to this infrastructure of uh, diversity, equity, and inclusiveness, and nothing's going to change. The Supreme Court decision on affirmative action didn't change it. Uh, Claudine Gay reinforced it as an administrator, and... um, Presumably, unless and until the board completely changes, which it won't, Harvard is going to continue down this path. And I just I wanted to get you both to weigh in on this, because I think this is going to be an ongoing problem unless these universities wake up. And I don't see the wake up call. Well, in Harvard's case, Larry, and Happy New Year to you, too, by the way, and to John. Um, it, they, the wake-up call is muted by a $52 billion endowment. I mean, in other words, with Penn, University of Pennsylvania, major donors really had some sway because you start taking away multi-billion dollar gifts and stop uh, donating annually to the annual fund, and you begin to put a crimp in the budget. No, that's not going to happen at Harvard. They have too much protection. However, I would say that if, if the 
board has any reasonable people on it, they surely are pretty horrified by what has taken place because the board is indeed the, the culprit here, right? They, they did not do their homework in vetting uh, Claudine Gay sufficiently. We know that because the search was very rapid and, and it, it's so transparently uh, a DEI outcome when the woman, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I think she published something like 11 papers in 27 years, which is mm. ridiculous for an academic. Um, and I think the Harvard Corporation actually knew about some of the plagiarism accusations. So the, it, the search was fraudulent. It's a little bit like Joe Biden picking Kamala Harris. I mean, the reason he did it was pretty obvious, and he even said so. So I think the question is, is the reputational damage such and the, simply the embarrassment such uh, that, that at least they will do something in the way of a review of the diversity of opinion available in their faculty and on campus. Because, boy, I've seen the numbers. It's awful. And, and that is really what has to change. Well, John McIntyre, I, I mean, Harvard dissed a Supreme Court decision. They changed nothing after the Supremes ruled against affirmative action. This was with respect to Asian Americans. I don't see why Harvard's going to diss anything else. I don't know about these other Ivies. I don't know what Princeton's done. I, I, I don't know. But I don't see any revolutions in their boards of directors or whatever they happen to be called, John. No, not yet. I mean, I, th I think this is just like one of the larger fault lines in our in our politics and i and i think uh mm -hmm. I, I think you'll see this you know litigated in 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 the 2024 election um because you know so much of the current you, you know democratic party uh re, you know re, relies on much of this sort of you know racial politics and mm -hmm. and that's kind of what fuels and drives you know this this DEI uh, social justice. You know, like woke politics on steroids, and um, and and so you know, I I think the the the, the political resolution of that is what ultimately I think might have an impact on sort of these elite institutions. And you know, right now, like the 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 the, the way they're going, like this is just. You know, it's kind of like the standard operating procedure it is this, and and I think they just view this as, as sort of a a bump in the road. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I, you know, the the problem is it's 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 like increasingly out of place with the majority of Americans. Okay, uh, particularly when it's explained sort of honestly and without without a media putting a thumb on the scale for, you know, a, a woke or social just version of it. And increasingly, when people sort of hear it, you know, explain to them, you know, 60, 70 you know, plus of Americans, um, you know, don't want this. And I think, you, you know, you, you know, you saw Vivek Ramaswamy out in um you know, Iowa making some news on this, pushing back against like some, you know, reporters, Washington Post reporters trying to, you know, make a big deal. But, you know, you know, trying to constantly make an issue of white racism or white. And, 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 and he had a great line where he says, look, the best way to end discrimination on the basis of race is stop discriminating on the basis of race. And, mm. and, and, 
And mm-hmm. I think I think the more Republicans get a confidence to to go out there and say that, and 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 make the proponents of DEI have to really defend what what, what is in effect you, you know kind of reverse racism, which you know 60, 70, 80 percent of Americans don't want. Uh, you know, I mean, the country genuinely wants to move to a colorblind. Uh, well, you know, race-neutral meritocracy, and, and these elite institutions but, are out of step with that. Right, but they have, as Liz suggested, they have so much damn money, they think they're invulnerable to it. Look, at I don't usually seek federal solutions to things, but I will tell you this. You talk about politics, and um, I'm sure Donald Trump's going to make this an issue in the campaign, but look, at it seems to me unless and until these schools face taxable income and a loss of research grant money, which has huge totals, I don't think they're going to move. And I don't think the Supreme Court decision against affirmative action will ever be implemented, Liz. I think the government, federal government, will have to step in and change its policies towards these schools and towards these affirmative action policies. Well, I think you're right. I've never thought that the Supreme Court decision was going to really have any meaningful impact because there's another there are many other ways to parse applications to get around it. I mean, it's just that simple. They can yeah. look at neighborhoods or income levels or whatever. And I'm sure that that's what they're going to do um, again. You know, Larry, I, um, I had dinner with uh, a very senior, a very significant Harvard donor and a graduate the other day. And he was saying, what can Harvard do? What should they do to kind of rectify this? And you remember the University of Chicago put out that very, um, very adamant statement about diversity of opinion and guaranteeing diversity of opinion on their campus. That would be a start because I have heard stories about people uh, at Harvard being in classes and, for example, white people being told you have nothing to contribute uh, to a class mm. about African-American studies, literally being told by the professor, mm. don't even bother to write the paper. I'm not going to you know, be able to grade that. So when there's that kind of activist racism and so forth going on, not to mention the anti-Semitism, which kind of brought all of this to a head, uh, I think the government might have a role. But first of all, Larry, they should start enforcing the laws that exist, like the fact that yeah. uh, Harvard and other schools are supposed to be reporting foreign grants. Why aren't they doing that? Why isn't the government requiring that kind of transparency? I have no idea, but that at least would be a starting place to say, hey, you're not really sacred cows here. You're, you know, you're part of the American community and you're supposed to behave that way. You know, uh, right. John, uh, Professor Dershowitz told me on the TV show uh, this past, I think it was this past week, I can't remember, but anyway, um, 97% 97% of the Harvard faculty is uh, Democrat. Mm-hmm. Now, is that diversity? Is that diversity, John McIntyre? I ask you. Well, well, <laughs> 97%. Right. And, and Liz is on to something when she talks about the lack of, of diversity of thought or, or intellectual <laughs> debate. And, and I think you're right that, that, that you will have to have, in some ways, like the Bigfoot of, of the federal government to kind of yeah. push these schools by denying federal grant money, sort of like the way with, like, you know, highway funds. You know, they force the state, mm-hmm. hey, if you, don't raise your, if you don't raise your drinking age from 18 to 21, you get no, you get, you get no federal grant money. But, 
but 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 this gets back to the political point because you you can't do that if you don't have po- people in political power pushing that and so it isn't right. going to be the, it's not going to be the democrat party and so you you know you have to have a republican party that is willing that has the confidence to fight on this issue okay and to not be intimidated by the by the by the smears of that's racist or or, or sexist or whatever so a you got to have the, a, a party that's willing to fight on it and win elections on it to be in power and then to actually follow through and that's where if they do that i think that that's when you can maybe start to see some change in some of these institutions yeah but without no, that, I, it's not going to happen i think that's true i think you're going to have to change these uh, boards of directors I had Tommy Tuberville, Senator Tuberville, on. Um, he was a football coach for four big, big schools. Um, I don't remember all of them, but certainly Auburn was one of them. I think Texas Tech, Cincinnati, and there was one other. All big schools, bigger than the Ivy schools. And he just came out and said, look, uh, I mean, football coaches are teachers. They interact with you know thousands of students. And he said, until you change the boards, you're not going to change the schools. My only add-on is that I think the federal government is going to have to step in, and that will require political will, as John McIntyre has suggested. But this is I think this, Liz, is going to be an issue. If Trump is the nominee, presumably, he is going to make this an issue. Well, and, and I think it will particularly be an issue uh, if we continue to see anti-Semitic um, activities on campus. That's unconscionable in my view. And that's, again, that's kind of what started this whole investigation into the boards, into the trustees, et cetera. And also, I, I would also give some credit to the alumni of these institutions. Uh, you know, where, wherever you look, and it's going to be very interesting to watch donations to Harvard, to Princeton, to Yale, et cetera. Princeton, you mer- mentioned, Larry, don't forget, they took the name of Woodrow Wilson off yep. their foreign policy school. It's where I went. It's where so I know domestic yeah, and I mean, foreign. I went there. I was a graduate student there. Yeah, my <laughs> they, erased, they erased my degree. They erased my history. <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's gone. <laughs> and, you know, as, as I mean, as my husband said, it's not just Woodrow Wilson was head of the school. He was the president of the United States. So what, you know, what in the world? It's ridiculous. But anyway, so all and and the upshot of that is an awful lot of people that start donating money. But the problem is you have this incestuous thing where every uh, every class basically gets to a point 25 years out or whatever where they want their kids to get in. And so they up their giving uh, because that ensures, you know, favorable treatment, presumably. Now, that doesn't happen as much anymore, but that has been the sort of incestuous cycle. And, you know, my guess is that is. um, That's going to take a bit of a hit. Let me jump out. Liz Peak, Fox News, uh, syndicated columnist John McIntyre, president and CEO of Real Clear Politics and Real Clear Markets. We come back. We're going to ask Mr. McIntyre who's going to win, not in Iowa, but in New Hampshire. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Larry Kudlow on 77 WABC. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking money and politics with Liz Peake, Fox News contributor and columnist and 
John McIntyre, President and CEO of Real Clear Politics and Real Clear Media. So, Mr. McIntyre, uh, the last batch, let's see, the Real Clear Politics for New Hampshire, Trump 46.3, Nikki Haley 24.8, but you're not posting any new, new polls. So she's got, uh, Trump has 20-point lead. Where does that race actually stand? What do you think? Uh, well, that, that's a great question. I mean, I think it's probably a little closer than that. I think of all the contests out there where where, where, where we might see a, a competitive result, it is New Hampshire. I, I, think, I think something that's going to have a big impact on that is how Iowa plays out here um, on, you know, about nine days from now. And I think, I, I, you know, I think it's possible that Haley could come in second. And and if she were to sort of make it a little closer in Iowa, that that could really, you know, give her some momentum into New Hampshire, where, you know, the other dynamic there is, you know, unaffiliated voters are allowed to vote in the Republican primary there, and you don't really have a Democratic primary going on, and so, um, you know, I I think for folks who are sort of you know, not not happy with Trump as as the Republican nominee, and are hoping for some p- pathway. The, you know, the only thing is, you know, Haley comes in second in Iowa. She gets a surge, and she maybe tries to pull an upset in New Hampshire. But um, even with that, I, I don't see Donald Trump losing the nomination. And I think if he if he follows up a win in Iowa with a win in New Hampshire, um, I, I think this thing is all over. Libs for Haley. Libs for Haley. New Hampshire, it's a suburb of Boston as far as uh, Democrats and independents are concerned. So, Liz, Liz Peak, not, not Lib Peak, but Liz Peak, what do you make of this? Well, I, I'm interested in that. I, I also, um, I'm wondering, South Carolina, John, I mean, is there any chance that Nikki Haley does well in South Carolina? Because the numbers don't look like that now. No, because, it, like, that's really the, the the rub here is whereas I really think she's coming close to New Hampshire is not going to be good enough because, you know, we, we yeah. did have a, a recent poll in, in South Carolina, you know, and Trump's at 54 and Haley's at 25 and, and, and Nikki Haley's, you know, she's not that popular in South Carolina and, <laughs> and Donald Trump is popular in South Carolina. Yeah. And Donald Trump has the support of the popular governor. You have the support of Lindsey Graham and he, he's, he's popular in South Carolina. So, in a sense, that that's a firewall for for Trump. You know, if if anything goes amiss in in, in New Hampshire, so you know, like Haley needs to win in New Hampshire, I think, to 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 maybe change some of the dynamic going on. Can I can I ask one other question, Larry? Um, John, looking yeah. at Joe Biden's dismal polls right now, can he possibly turn this around by next November? In your view. <laughs> <laughs> only if you, yeah, that only was, if well, you well, tops DEI. <laughs> look, that's a great question. Um and 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 I would say, I mean, I, I say this all like the, the odds of, of of Donald Trump being the Republican nominee are way higher than the odds of Joe Biden being the eventual Democratic nominee. And I think I that's not to say that Biden won't be the nominee. It's just to say that Biden's in real trouble. Okay, because, you know, his his job approval is mired around 40 percent. 
you know, people used to say if you had an incumbent president below 50 percent, you couldn't win reelection. But 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 40 percent is is getting close to Jimmy Carter territory. And yeah, but and, Biden and won't thing, let he won't let them he won't let anybody run against him. He's canceled the Florida no, primary. He's stopping the no, North right. Carolina primary. He won't let this poor son of a gun, Dean Phillips, run any place. <laughs> I mean, I know Biden's for democracy in Valley Forge, but it doesn't include his own Democratic Party. Yeah, yeah look, I mean, I, I, look, Biden's obviously the favorite to remain to be the Democratic nominee. But uh, but but if you get into the to, to, to May and June and these legal cases against Trump don't have the effect that that the people going after Trump want them to have because to to date they just seem to, to to strengthen Trump. Okay. And I would include even like potential like, you know, convictions because the public isn't viewing these as honest prosecutions. Okay. Certainly yeah. Republican voters aren't. And, yeah. and and there's increasingly signs that independent voters aren't seeing it that way too. So you, you know, but look, having said all that you know, we could be, you know, in the summer, it could be in a different place where the Democrats start to get unified. They're turning all their attention on Trump. They obviously the only chance they have to win is to make the election about Trump because Biden can't run on his record. OK, and he can't run on the, the fact that people like his performance as president. Um, so. You know, I mean, the reality is, if it, you know, we're, we're, we're probably headed for a rematch that's just going to be extremely, extremely close and decided in, you know, the same, you know, four or five states it was decided in in 2020. Hmm. Liz, did you like Biden's speech at Valley Forge? Oh, I, I, I honestly, I'm so <laughs> offended by everything this president does, including Elizabeth Warren was out there today talking about the big lie, meaning, I presume, Republicans denying the election outcome. My my view of the big lie is that somehow he is the pro-democracy candidate because yeah. of just what you're you know, they're in favor of censoring free speech. And they're the ones who are trying to lock up a leading political opponent. It's pretty staggering. And, John, I mean, I it seems to me people are. Uh, ignoring a lot of these legal problems of Trump because exactly what you're saying, that uh, they don't view him as legitimate. They view him as partisan hectoring, if you will. Um, the, the question is, will they also, uh, you know, turn away from being horrified by January 6th events? Don't answer, mm -hmm. John. We'll answer it next week. We'll have you back next week and you can answer it. All right. John McIntyre, Real Clear Politics, Liz Peak, Fox News. We'll have McIntyre on next week to wrap up the whole primary story. I'm Cudlow, folks. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next weekend.